Well, hey, Momentum Online, what do we have coming up here in just a few days? One of my all-time favorite holidays, okay? I love Thanksgiving. Now, I wanna show you something, and I wanna see if you can figure out what it is. You, hopefully, you can based on that little prompt there, but can you tell me what this is? Graham crackers, cinnamon, condensed milk, ground ginger, sugar, eggs, nutmeg, salt, butter, pumpkin. All right, some of you like instantly knew it. Some of you, it took a second or two. Hopefully by now, like 80, 90% of you figured out, yes. This is the ingredient list to pumpkin pie, an essential must have for me on Thanksgiving, okay? These are the ingredients that you need to make an excellent pumpkin pie. Now for you though, what is your must have item on Thanksgiving? Is it like mashed potatoes? Is it stuffing? Is it the uh, cranberry sauce that you like dump out of a can and it comes out still in the shape of a can and you gotta like slice it up just to make it look human and normal? Or like what, for you, what is your go-to must have Thanksgiving item? Okay, now here's why I ask you that and here's why I talk about that. In almost every single thing that you put together on a Thanksgiving uh, dinner or in a Thanksgiving plate, there is a certain list of ingredients that you have to have. There's a certain list of ingredients that you need in order for it to work properly. You can't just randomly throw stuff in there and then throw it in the oven and hope it turns out okay. You need certain ingredients in certain amounts in order to get a great pumpkin pie or to get great mashed potatoes or to get that green bean casserole the way that you want or shoot some of you guys have very specific ways on how you're going to make the turkey you know you've got a recipe that you've been using and you've got you know you got to baste it with this and not that and it's at this temperature for so long there's specific instructions that we follow to get the good meal that we want all right now why do i bring this up why am i talking about this why is this even a thing okay here's why I think we all get the, hey, there's a recipe that we need to do, there's a, there's a step that we need to follow for food, and we forget that that same set of principles honestly applies to a lot of other life. For example, if I, if I were to tell you, for just for example, and I don't, I don't think any of this is gonna be new information to you. If I were to say, hey, what have been some of the most prevalent and what have been some of the most common issues and problems that have come out of the last two years of, of this COVID season, of this recovery season, what has been something that just seems to be affecting everybody? It would not take you very long to say the word loneliness or isolation or lack of community or friendship or something like that. Pretty soon that would be like, if that wasn't your first thing that you said, it would definitely be in your top three or four. And I, what I wanna do today is I want to address this because if any place should be good at community, at relationship, at having each other's back, it should be the church. But the thing that I find is that people in the church are just as lonely, feeling just as isolated, feeling just as disconnected as anyone in the world. And honestly, this should not be. And here's what I don't wanna to do today. I don't wanna go after all the obvious causes like well, if you spend all your time on Instagram, of course you're gonna feel lonely. I mean, that's it's 100% true, but I wanna talk about some deeper things. I wanna talk about some other issues. And to kind of kick us off, I wanna share with you from a book that I read a few years ago that honestly really helped my thinking about this. Uh, There's a woman named Christine Pohl, and she wrote a book called Living Into, Communi Living Into Community, Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us. 
Now, Christine Pohl is a professor at a theological seminary. I think it's called Asbury. I can't remember exactly if that's where she's at. But anyway, she did like a five-year research project examining communities that really seem to thrive. What makes some groups of believers really thrive, really have great community, and others not? And after the five years, she wrote her findings. And, one of the, and in the beginning of her book, this is something that she says. She says, the way that we've been formed by church and culture have not given us the skills or virtues we need to be part of the very communities we long for and try to create. While we might want community, it is often community on our terms, with easy entrances and exits, lots of choices and support, and minimal responsibilities. What she's basically saying is that while we want community, we have a bad recipe for how to get there. While I might want pumpkin pie, I keep pouring in grapes and wondering why it doesn't turn out right. While we might want a really great turkey, we're turning the oven up for like to 200 degrees and only putting it in for 30 minutes and wondering why it just tastes all yucky and raw, okay? The ingredients that we put into community do not produce the type of community that we desperately want and long for. To be as bluntly possible as I can here, how we think that we want community and what we're doing to get it simply do not match. She goes on to say in the same book, communities in which we grow and flourish, however, last over time and are built by people who are faithful to one another and committed to a shared purpose. Community life certainly has moments of incredible beauty and intense personal connection, but catch this, but much of it is daily and ordinary. Our lives are knit, are knit together, not so much by intense feeling as by shared history, task, commitment, stories, and sacrifices. Now here's the deal. We see this image in our minds of what we want. We want people that have our back. We want people that show up for us. We want people that care about us. We want people that notice when we're not there. We go and we, when we, when we go to the scriptures like Acts chapter 2, which I'm going to read here in a second, and we look at it and we're like, that's it. That's what I want. The early church got it. They, they, they knew what it looked like. We desperately long for it, but we've got the wrong ingredient list. We look at these verses. I'm just going to read them. Acts 2, four, uh, starting at verse 44. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were a tight-knit group of people. They loved each other. They cared for each other. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Someone had a need come up and they had no money. Someone's like, hey, hey I'll sell this so that you're covered. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love these verses and I hate them at the exact same time. And here's why. I love the picture that it paints of what this community looks like. People from different backgrounds, from different parts of the world, coming together, united in Jesus, and learning to live together as humanity was created to do. And it sounds like, I mean, we look at that, we're like, yeah, I want that. I want a group of people that loves and supports me and cares for me. I love these verses for what it paints, and I hate it because it doesn't show us how hard that probably was. Like, we look at it, and it's like, it just seemed to happen. And what we don't understand is how difficult that actually is. The kind of way you have to live your life in order for that to be true. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to demystify. I want to take the mystery out of 
why community works in some cases and why it doesn't in others. What I wanna do is like at the end of today, when we walk away, I want us to know, okay, like, hey, if we're really serious about having life-giving community and relationships that truly help inspire and push us forward, then these are the things that we have to be committed to. They're not easy, they're not, uh, they're not easily gonna fit into our schedules, but if we do them, the odds are we're much more likely to get the very thing that so many of us are longing and hoping for, true life-giving community. And so, following our Thanksgiving cooking theme, okay, here are the key ingredients that are necessary to have life-giving community. And we're gonna break them down, so don't worry, but just real quick, you got Sabbath, gratitude, promise making and keeping, commitment to emotional maturity, and hospitality. When you mix these five ingredients together, the end result is often life-giving community. And I'm gonna break them down and we're gonna go through them and I'm gonna show you how each of these play a part. Starting first with just simply Sabbath, okay? We talk about Sabbath a lot here at Momentum and there's a reason for that. Sabbath is a specific set of time that you set aside each week where you spend time enjoying life and enjoying the presence of God on purpose. And it is Sabbath that gives us the emotional fuel and the relational space to actually invest in other people. Without Sabbath, having relationships simply becomes another to-do in an already busy week. If you're already at your wit's end at the end of every week, you don't have the space, you don't have the capacity, you do not have the time to actually invest in anybody else. Sabbath, though, is the refuel that we need to invest in other people. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you're like, wait a second, Jesus. I know plenty of people that don't have a relationship with you and they're able to do stuff. It's like, he's not talking about like, yeah, sure. You can go be busy, stressed out, distracted and lonely and isolated. You can do that apart from Jesus, absolutely. But if what you truly want is life-giving community, one of the foundational practices you have to have is a weekly rhythm of taking time to enjoy the life that God has given you and to spend time with him. We call this Sabbath. It is a replenishment for our souls and our very being. And we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it more in the future. I don't want to belabor the point here, but one of the foundational practices for good community is actually practicing rest. Rest allows us to do the, the rest of our week. All right, next one, gratitude. Now, I need to explain this very specifically. There's a saying in poker that if you sit down at a poker table and you can't spot who the sucker is in five minutes, you're probably the sucker, okay? You're the guy that everyone's gonna like get the money from. Let me explain this in community. If you can't spot the jerk in your group within the first five minutes, you're probably the jerk, okay? And here's what makes community so hard. We keep trying to find communities that do not have any unpleasant people in them. No one that we disagree with, no one that we dislike, no one that we're like, ah, they vote differently than me. We keep trying to find a community of people that look like us, act like us, and think like us. And then we keep wondering why it's so hard to find community. Okay, and you're like, okay, Jeremy, what does that have to do with gratitude? Let's take a look at what John wrote in the letter First John. He says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whomever or whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Pay attention to this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our, for our sins. All right, now pay attention. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because of our gratitude towards God for loving us, in spite of all of our junk, in spite of all of our crap, in spite of all of our hang-ups and baggage, God still loved us. And because of that, out of gratitude for that, we go and love others. Which means part of community is regularly practicing the part of loving someone else that is difficult to love. And sometimes the primary motivation, the primary tool you've got to use is just simply gratitude. Hey, God loved me when I wasn't that great. I'm going to love this guy. I'm going to love this person, even though they're not that great, simply because if God can love me, then I can love this other person. Without gratitude, it's very quickly easy. You just start writing people off. Well, they did this. Well, they did that. Well, they weren't like this. You know, they don't agree with me on that, or they believe this and I don't believe that. And very quickly, you, you just start cutting people off. And the more you cut people off, the, the smaller you make your circle, the more isolated and lonely you feel. It's just a, simply a numbers game. I keep shrinking my world, and I wonder why my world feels so small. Gratitude is another one of the key ingredients in creating life-giving community. The third one, making and keeping promises. Now, here's the deal. Here's what promises do in the life of a community. They connect, they build, and they create. And here's what I mean by that. Every time I make a promise to you, hey, I'll be there, I've created a relational and emotional connection between the two of us. Something as simple as just saying, yeah, I'll see you Saturday. Yeah, I'll be there. There is a connection. As you continue to make and keep promises, okay, I'll see you there. Okay, I'll be there too. You're building trust. You're building relationship. You are creating community. That's what promises do. But let's talk about what our culture actually looks like. Hey, I'll be there. And then I got busy and I'm sorry I'm not. Or something better came up. Or a lot of us break promises with zero thought anytime something comes up. Many of us don't even make promises. I don't want to commit to something because I don't know if I'll actually want to do it. And so because I never make any promises to you and you never keep any promises to me or vice versa, now neither one of us really likes to commit and neither one of us really likes to say we're going to be there, None of those little connections ever actually start to get built. The things that help bind us all together, the things that help connect us all together are making and keeping promises. If I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. If I say I'm going to do it, I'll do it. And I'm not going to let small, minute circumstances change that. Oh, I don't feel that great today. Oh, I have a small headache. Like, I get it. Like, if you're in the hospital, you're in the hospital. It makes sense. But so often we break our promises anytime, literally, it's the least bit inconvenient. And then we say, I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel like there's no one around. And once again, we look at the way we practice it. And it's like, I kind of think it makes sense. In fact, this was actually a very big deal to the Apostle Paul. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. Or excuse me, in uh, yeah, Ephesians chapter 4 he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Basically saying, hey, look, you came to Jesus and you left behind your old way of life. You started to embrace this new reality, this new identity, who you truly are. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then look at what he says. So what do you do with all this? Like you're a brand new creation. You're someone new in Jesus. What does he say? Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Because we are all connected, we've got to hold telling the truth in high regard. Telling the truth, keeping our promises. If we say we're going to do something, we are people that do it. Paul says, like, this is a sign that you are actually a Jesus follower, that you are a new creation, that because that we are our one body, we don't lie to each other. We don't break promises. We don't hesitate to commit simply because it's like, ah, I don't know, I don't want to be inconvenienced. We say, no, no, you can count on me, and I know that I can count on you, and over time that helps create community. All right. Commitment to emotional maturity. Here's the deal. I love what Pete Scazzaro says. He says, you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. The two go hand in hand. Now, you can become very intelligent about Bible matters and you can learn a lot of facts, but to become actually spiritually mature, which is different than smart, to become spiritually mature means emotional maturity is going along with it. And in a group, there's always somebody who just does not want to deal with their junk. And we all have it. We all have things in our past that have hurt us. We all have things that we don't like. We all have all these things. And it's not that it's wrong that you have those things. The problem comes when no one wants to deal with them, when no one wants to take a step forward. When anytime someone lovingly says, hey man, do you understand that every time we get together, you're the first one to talk? you're the last one to talk, and you do most of the talking in between. Do you, like, do you think maybe you could let some other people speak in? And we get all angry, and we get all bristly, and we get all defensive, and we're like, I thought this was supposed to be a you know, loving, accepting community, and we, and we want to walk away. And it's like, hold on, hold on. That is loving and accepting. You've got some emotional junk you need to deal with. You've got some things you need to work out. And it's our inability to ever have anyone speak truth in love to us that causes us to continue to have community that doesn't ever seem to satisfy, that doesn't ever actually seem to go anywhere. Because if everyone just kind of has to, yeah, yeah, we, I'm not going to say that about him, and he's not going to say that about me, and we're not going to talk about this, even though it all, you know, it's obvious that it's in the room, but no one wants to say anything, then here's what happens. After a week or two of that happening, where there's clearly some people that, need some, that have some issues, and no one's going to deal with it, no one's going to talk about it, then, it, then the, the decision is just like, you know what, this is tough, this is difficult, i got better things to do. Peace out, I'm gone. And what was building in community collapses under the weight of no one wants to be emotionally mature. And so it is our commitment to emotional maturity, me owning my stuff and working on it, me praying and reading scripture and saying, okay, God, I know there's stuff in me that needs to transform. Change me, walk me through this, show me what this looks like. And then letting other people who I love and trust hold me accountable and walk me through that, that things begin to change. Once again, in Ephesians chapter 4, this is how Paul talked to the Ephesians about it. He said, instead, speaking the truth in love. Once again, those things have to be in conjunction, truth and love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For the whole, for the whole body, for him, 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now here, I want to focus in on that last part, as each part does its work. When we refuse to become emotionally mature, there are people and things that aren't getting done that should have been taken care of by us. As we become emotionally mature, there are other people that get cared for because we now have the emotional space and capacity to care for them. But as we stay immature, it means there's a part of the, the, the body of Christ that cannot function properly, that cannot work the way that it was intended to do. Now I get it, emotional maturity is a process. You don't just wake up one day and become fully mature. You grow mature over time. But it is our, it is our lack of desire to grow mature that not only hurts us, but it hurts the whole body. There's, there's th there are people that need the information that you have, that need the space and capacity that you have, that need the, the growth that you've displayed. And if you don't commit to it, they don't receive it. And often, in a lot of cases, you might be one of the only people that God has put in their life to walk them through a particular season. And if you're so consumed with your own junk and you don't have any space or time to heal and you haven't done any work yourself, they suffer as well. We are a connected body. And the more we pull away from that, the more we drop those balls, the more we shun that responsibility, the more we all feel isolated, the more we all feel disconnected, the more we all feel like, man, shouldn't there be more to this? Shouldn't this feel somehow different? Emotional maturity matters. Finally, let's talk a little bit about hospitality. And I want to talk about hospitality because I think most people have the wrong definition of it. When they think of hospitality, they think, I invite my friends over for dinner. That can be a piece of hospitality, but that's not actually, when, when we read the term hospitality in the Bible, that's not actually what it's talking about. Here, it's easier just to listen to the words of Jesus. He knows more about this than I do. Luke chapter 14, here's what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to his host, he was at a dinner party. He's talking to him. He's explaining hospitality. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. All right, is Jesus saying you can never have dinner with your friends or family? No, that's not what he's talking about. Of course you can. What he's saying is that true hospitality takes a moment and says, who's being left out? Who's being overlooked? I love what so often, uh, one of the phrases in our student ministry, they often say like, you know, we look out for the left out. They intentionally say, okay, what student is off by themselves? What student doesn't seem to be connecting? And we're gonna go pursue them. We're gonna go make sure that they are connected. Hospitality is doing the same thing. It's saying, okay, I'm gonna look around my neighborhood. I'm gonna look around my social circles. Who's not here that should be? Who isn't part of this that needs to be? And I'm making sure they get an invitation. There are not people who are excluded from my table. And I'm telling you what, if you practice hospitality, you have purpose within a group. You ever been part of a community group or uh, you know, a gathering or something like that, and it starts off really good, and for like five or six weeks, everyone's like, yeah, this is really good, and then it just kind of fizzles and fades over time because life gets busy, other things come up. Oftentimes, the only reason we were getting together was to get together. And then they were like, hey, you know what? It's busy this week. I still love you. You still love me. We'll figure it out. Because there's not a greater purpose other than just us getting together. Hospitality is what gives us that purpose because it says, hey, remember that we're inviting people in that need space in a place. 
they don't have it elsewhere or we're not sure if they have enough. And so, because we're inviting them in, we need to show up. They need this space. I might personally, quote unquote, feel fine this week, but I know they're going to need it. So we're going to keep showing up and we're going to keep looking. Hospitality is the key ingredient. Just like you can't have pumpkin pie without pumpkin, all you get is like a crust and some whipped topping, which honestly probably not that bad, but it's not pumpkin pie. Hospitality is the key ingredient that makes life-giving community work. Because if it's just about me feeling good and you feeling good and we're already friends and we already like each other, community may or may not happen. But when we say, hey, no, this, this has a greater purpose. And when we gather and when we, when we share life together, we're going to make sure that we're bringing along somebody that we think needs us. And we invite them in and they get to be a part of this. Then I have purpose. Then, and honestly, historically, this is how the church has always reached people. Sermons are great. I'm giving one. I hope it's good. You know, great worship is awesome. I love to hear our worship team sing. I love, to, I love the, the experience of it. But historically, what has caused the church to grow is ordinary, everyday people who never step up on a stage, looking around their neighborhood, saying, who can I love well? Who can we collectively get together and share life with? It's the way that everyone gets to participate. Not everyone is going to help us set up and tear down, and that's fine. Not everyone's going to serve with uh, Momentum Kids, and that's fine. Everyone can practice hospitality because it's not about having a Martha Stewart home. It's not even about having your own home. It's about being a person who intentionally includes others when you're doing practically anything. I love what the, the theologian from last century, uh, Robert Weber, said about this. He said, the church is the primary presence of God's activity in the world. As we pay attention to what it means to be the church, we create an alternative community to the society of the world. This is, I'm going to stop right there. We're going to keep reading it, but I'm going to stop right there. We keep talking about how the church is supposed to be a family, but then we spend our time living exactly the way the world lives. Broken commitments, not growing emotionally mature, not practicing gratitude, not practicing Sabbath, and we're wondering why we don't feel any different than the world. And what he says in this is that as we pay attention to what it means to be the church, we create an alternative society, uh, an alternative community to the society of the world. People should be looking in and saying, that's different and I want it. He goes on to say, this new community, the embodied experience of God's kingdom, will draw people into itself and nurture them in the faith. In this sense, the church and its life in the world will become the new apologetic. What does that mean? He's basically saying, as we practice life-giving community, it cannot help but look different than what the world does. And it cannot help but draw people in. We know this. We've, we've, we've talked about this forever. The world is a very, very lonely place. And if you are a lonely person and you encounter a community that loves each other and that is accepting people in, you don't have to argue people into that. They naturally gravitate towards it because we were designed and wired for life-giving relationship. And it is our ability to love each other well that actually shows the world what it is they're missing out on. Uh, in that same book that I've been quoting several times from Christine Pohl, she says this, The best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Jesus risked his reputation and the credibility of his story 
by tying them to how his followers live and care for one another in community. Go back to John 17. What does he say? He prays that we would be one and that as people would see us love one another, they would be drawn in. This is Jesus's plan for the world. If we could cut through our complacency or despair, we might be shocked at what is really at stake here. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and family has the power to draw people to the kingdom or push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. Let me make it as blunt as I possibly can. I can preach the best sermons. Matt can preach the best sermons. But realistically, you have far more influence over how people come to find Jesus than we do. Because you know far more people than him and I combined. And as we live in community, as we take care of each other, as we keep and make promises, as we do these things, we are showing the world what the life of Jesus really looks like. And it is far more powerful than anything I can say. And so, if you've been waiting for someone to take the lead on this, let me just go ahead and tell you that you are empowered and commissioned by God himself to go and live this way. One of the great things that all of us could do over this holiday season and going forward is to simply say, hey, you know what? I'm going to start giving to others what I wish someone had been giving to me. I wish someone had my back. I wish someone was inviting me in. I wish someone cared and checked up on me. But I'm not going to just sit here and keep wishing for those things. I'm going to go and do them and give them to someone else. The world's always waiting for someone to go first. We get to be those people. We get to be the people that go first. And let me put my money where my mouth is. I don't know when you're watching this. Hopefully you're watching this before Thanksgiving. If you don't have a place to go for Thanksgiving, you have a place at my house. Just DM me, text me, email me, whatever you need. You can come over and I would love to celebrate Thanksgiving with you and my family and whoever else happens to show up. Because once again, I want to be a place that practices these things. I want to be a place that by the very nature of our relationships and how we love one another, that we are different than the world in a way that makes the world go, man, I want that. So let's take a look at those list of ingredients one last time. What do we got? Sabbath, gratitude, hospitality, commitment to emotional maturity, and making and keeping promises. Where do you need to start? Some of these you might already be practicing. What do you need to add in? As we practice these things together, as we do this in community together, watch what God does and watch how much more fulfilled we become. Watch how our feelings of isolation, disconnection start to diminish. Watch us become the very thing that we've longed for most of our lives. Love you guys. We'll talk to you again next week.